Luke chapter 1. Christmas shopping done? Good, most of you didn't lie. How about this? Christmas shopping started. At, no, not for me, sorry. Y'all know Christmas Eve day is a wonderful day. Uh, you will see me going 100 miles, not driving 100 miles an hour, not at all. Uh, but you will see me in town, and I will ignore you on Christmas Eve day because there is a task to do. Um, that's what Christmas Eve day is for. So I, I actually take joy in that, as crazy as that is. I know some of you, that would like, like send your blood pressure through the roof. But I love shopping on Christmas Eve day. I told my wife for years it was because there were all kinds of great sales on Christmas Eve day. That's a lie. There's not. Um, they like to try to tell you, like, oh, 60% off the entire store. But they're not talking about their store. They're talking about a different store. <laughs> but I love Christmas Eve day shopping because it just gives me a chance to go out and to see all the crazy people dressed up. Usually, I mean, we get that at Christmas Eve here for our services. People wear the great outfits. You go shopping on Christmas Eve day, that's what you're going to find. There's some pretty amazing outfits in the malls and and, and I just enjoy that, that time. It gives me, fills me full with, with great joy. What, what brings you great joy during Christmas? What, what is it for you that just like, oh, there it is. That's just, that's just fun. I just enjoy that so much. I, for, for many of us, we've talked about this before, it's Christmas movies. Um, for many of us, it's family. It's food. It's just time off. It, it's, it's unhurried time. I was talking to a couple of you this morning about that differently uh, in, in different conversations, but, but there is nothing quite like being able to do nothing and not feel guilty about it. Just to be able to truly Sabbath from everything else that's happening in life, to, to breathe, to, to take it in. One of the things that um, um, gives many people great joy is when you are moving along in life and you think you know how things are going to end and then you have a completely unexpected turn. This seems to be a theme in my life lately, uh, the, the unexpected twist. But I, I think if you think about some of the greatest fairy tales, the greatest nursery stories, the, the, the things that really connect with us. So, so think about a story like Cinderella. How many of you really, I mean, I'm not talking the new movie Cinderella. I'm talking old school Walt Disney with the little mice that sings Cinderella. How many of you like Cinderella? Raise your hand. Okay, everybody that doesn't have their hand raised, you'd look at them and rebuke them right now. <laughs> Cinderella's that movie where, I mean, you know the story, you know the gist. She's living with her stepmom and her stepsisters, and she is like the, the odd one out. She's responsible to do all the hard work in the house, and, and so you know she's always got the work clothes on. She's got the, the mop in her hand. Her knuckles are bleeding because she's scrubbing the floor, and, and this moment comes in the kingdom where the prince needs a wife, and everybody's invited, and so Cinderella gets excited, but no, she's not allowed to go. She needs to stay home and finish her chores. Those horrible stepsisters just rub it in, Right? And they, they go, but you know what happens. The godmother, fairy godmother shows up and poof, there's a pumpkin. Now it's a carriage. Poof, the mice, they're like valiant steeds now. They're, I mean, there's amazing things happening. And so now, now she's going to the ball and she just happens to meet the prince. Now, just a little, little trivia for you. Do you know how much the prince and Cinderella speak? Ten words. The entire movie of romance is built on 10 words. But he was enthralled with her, right? He was enthralled, so much so that at midnight, you know how it works. The prince and Cinderella are doing the dance, and then they're not like doing the electric slide or something. They're doing like a ball dance. But 
then the, the clock strikes midnight, and she goes tearing down the stairs because everything's going to turn back to its original form, and she goes running down the stairs, and in so doing, she loses a shoe. Another trivia fact for you, if you watch carefully, Cinderella actually loses a shoe three times in the movie. So evidently, it's a common problem that Cinderella has, Okay. <laughs> So she loses the shoe running down the stairs. She gets home and it's like, oh, I can't believe it. And and, and now the prince must find this woman who he engaged in such deep conversation with. The only thing he has is a glass slipper, which for some unknown reason doesn't turn back at midnight. And this glass slipper is so precisely tailored and cobbled to her foot that no one else in the kingdom could possibly have the same shoe size as her. And so he searches the kingdom with the glass slipper, trying to find his princess. Now, we watching the story know what's going to happen. But you know when, when the, the one comes to Cinderella's house, the stepsisters are pushing and shoving to get in their, their foot in the way, right? Oh, try mine! Try mine! And they try, no, to no avail. And it's like Cinderella's kind of an afterthought until that glorious moment where the foot and the slipper connect and all live happily ever after. Because, men, it's all about shoes. <laughs> there, there's a level of joy that comes from that story because it's, it's, it's completely unexpected. And, and I think in our text this morning we'll find somewhat of the same. We view ourselves, and rightly so at times, as the ones who are simply scrubbing the floor. But God's looking for us with a gift that's going to change our life forever. See, Mary begins, we're listening to a praise song from Mary herself. And Mary begins her picture of joy starting in chapter 1, verse 46, and she says this, My soul praises the greatness of the Lord. My spirit, it rejoices in God my Savior because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. I'm going to stop there. I, I, I believe as we consider what brings about great joy, one of the things that must be in place for us to live a life that is marked by joy is a healthy understanding of who we actually are. Who we actually are. And, and, and I want to be careful, so I'm, I almost went off on a huge rabbit trail, and I'm not going to do that. Here, here's the reality, okay? The reality of who we are is this. I am not awesome. I am not awesome. This is like the weirdest self-help moment, isn't it? But I, I, I'll stop, sorry. Another rabbit trail averted. That's two already. Oh. So, so, so here in this moment, actually Mary makes this comment to a degree. I, I've kind of put a frankism on it. And she has said, as I consider everything that's happening, what I've come to realize is this. I am not awesome. In God's eyes, I am simply his servant. Those are the words of Mary. Now, um, without spending the entire morning on this, because it easily could happen. There are two camps, really, that, that kind of come into play when you speak about Mary. You've got a camp that would be considered um, a camp that follows after Mariolatry, which would be the worship of Mary. 
And then you've got a camp that is so uncomfortable with Mariolatry, we've developed our own camp called Maryphobia. We don't even want to talk about her. So, so let, me, let me jump into this just a little bit. Now, now please understand, I, I am gonna, these are big generalizations, and I know that. Many of us here are from a Catholic background. Many of us here might even still claim to be Catholic. And, and please, do not take offense to this. I just want to explain our position based on Scripture of how we view Mary. The, the Catholic Church um, would... Well, actually, let me go back. Folks who fall into the Mary-phobia camp would make accusations against the Catholic Church in particular as being people who are um, Mary idolaters. They, They worship Mary. And the Catholic Church has an official position that rejects that charge of idolatry. They have an official position that says they do not adore Mary, they venerate Mary. So, So what they would say is only God is worthy of adoration, Saints, however, are worthy of veneration, and Mary's been elevated to the highest level of veneration over all other saints, because they would say, we do not adore Mary, we don't worship Mary, we venerate Mary. However, here's, here's the argument. The difference between adoration and veneration is very difficult to determine. So it's not an uncommon thing to enter into a Catholic church or to watch Catholics practicing their faith and hear them singing songs to Mary. It's not uncommon to have a Catholic person pray to Mary, to kiss her picture, to parade her image throughout the streets, to travel great distances to bow down before her statues. And and so with that in mind, that reflect a degree of reverence towards Mary that actually verges on idolatry if it's not straight up idolatry. And so when you look at this passage, what you find is Mary's self-confession is, I am simply a servant of humble condition. I am a young woman who God used, not because I've carried with myself any strength or any righteousness. So, so you will not find in Scripture that Mary has any power to connect us to God. You won't find anywhere in Scripture that says Mary can heal us. That Mary can hear our prayers. Mary is not the co-redemptress, okay? It's Jesus and Jesus alone. Now, let me me be clear. I want to be careful. Well, I believe in Jesus, but that alone part is particularly important because the moment you add something to Jesus, you no longer believe in the sufficiency of Jesus, and so it's, it's, we, don't, we don't believe. Now, now, she isn't called Holy Mother in the Scripture anywhere. Actually, that attribute is, is God's, and somehow the, the Catholic tradition kind of, and I'll, I'll use a, this is a harsh term, but they've hijacked her story. But, but, but she's blessed, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. But, but what's important is you need to understand what blessed means. When it, when it comes to the conversation of other people, you get to the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are, blessed are. And he walks through, Jesus walks through all of these different people. The word blessed is to be taken to mean to be envied. So when a person has been blessed, the reality is the rest of us would look at that person and be like, wow, they are to be envied. And they are to be envied oftentimes regardless of outside circumstances because of the loving activity of God in their lives. So so when you think about Mary in this story, 13-year-old Mary, 
has an angel show up and say, you are, are going to have the Holy Spirit come upon you and you are going to give birth to the promised Messiah. Is that good news for a 13-year-old? I mean, her reputation is now trash. People still believe she's an adulteress. Even at the time that Jesus was old, there was the rumor going around that Mary had been um, uh, unfaithful with a Roman soldier, and that's where Jesus came from. Her reputation has been destroyed. The man that she is engaged to be married still at this point hasn't heard that she's pregnant. She's got to be thinking, this is the worst thing ever. And yet, in fact, what she says is, other people will look at me enviously because of the privilege that God is giving me in this moment. She's done nothing to deserve this. She's a servant of humble condition. And she knows that as she looks through the history of Israel, all these other women, I mean, so as as the Israelites looked forward to the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the the promised King of Kings of the Lord of Lords, as they looked ahead for that, they would talk all the time about when it might happen, how it might happen, and they would kind of determine all these things. And the, the women would have conversations about who'd be the one chosen to bring him into the world. Some of the greatest women in Israel's history. Think Rebecca, Rachel. Leah, Ruth, Esther. And yet they hadn't been chosen to have this incredible privilege. But somehow, this 13-year-old girl from Podunk, Nazareth, who's engaged to a carpenter, has been given this privilege. She's not a stalwart of spirituality. She's not a matriarch of, 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 of um all the answers. She's not this maternal grand poobah for everybody. This this soon-to-be bride of a carpenter with no standing culturally and no standing with her peers who has done nothing to deserve the favor of God has been blessed by God's grace to be the chosen vessel to bring the Messiah into the world. She's not using false humility here. She's of humble condition compared to everybody else. See, Mary stands before God just like we do. We're needy, we're flawed, we're imperfect. We can't do anything to earn his favor. But because of the way God intervenes with grace, she is incredibly blessed. So joy begins with that proper understanding of who we are. We're not awesome, but we sure are blessed. We're not awesome. You need proof? Well, get your own proof because I know it about me. I don't want to show you videos. We're not awesome. We're not awesome. And that, that, that should actually begin the process of bringing joy in our life to understand what it is that God has graced us with even though we are so unawesome. But it becomes great joy when we have a proper understanding of who God is. And that's where Mary goes in her, her season of praise. It's, it's fascinating to me that as, as Mary considers the privilege that has been given to her, her song reflects on the, the character and nature and personality of God as she continues. So let me start again, verse 46. Mary said, my soul praises the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed. Because the mighty one has done great things for me, and his name is holy. His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. He's done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. 
He's toppled the mighty from their thrones. He's exalted the lowly. He's satisfied the hungry with good things. He sent the rich away empty. He's helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he spoke to our ancestors. So, so as Mary considers what's happening in her life, she has a proper understanding of who she is, and then she understands properly who God is. While I'm not awesome, God sure is. And as, as she walks through this, there are three attributes of God she seems to reflect on. Starting in verse 49, she says, his name is holy. Now, now people have a misunderstanding of the word holy. Holy is this weird church word that means ultra-religious. It's the people who dress funny. The people who would never even step foot into an establishment that might possibly have alcohol inside of it. It's the people who would never watch sports on Sunday because it's the Sabbath. That's holy. And I think we have this, this weird misunderstanding of what holiness is because we have tried to define it within our own culture instead of defining it by the way the Bible defines it. And you want a definition of holy? Look at Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, the, the prophet Isaiah comes into the very presence of God and it says it was in the year the king Isaiah died and he saw the Lord seated on high in a lofty throne and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Angels, seraphim, were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. With two, they flew. And one angel called to another angel, holy, holy, holy. That's the Lord of armies. His glory has filled the whole earth. In, in this moment, as Isaiah comes into the presence of God and he sees angels themselves, even the angels in God's presence are doing their best to hide themselves from God's holiness. They're ducking behind their wings. They're, they're trying to, to avoid contact with him because they are unworthy especially in the presence of the one whose name is holy. You, you get down, the foundations of the doorways were shaking at the sound of the angels' voices. The temple was filling with smoke, and then Isaiah says this, Woe is me, for I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And because my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of armies. That Isaiah, who, who you could say was a pretty holy guy, He's a prophet, probably pretty righteous. He sees the holiness of God and he feels like his very life is in danger. Why? Because God's holiness is incredibly overwhelming. God's holiness is so overwhelming, it can actually be dangerous to approach. Think of God's holiness like you would think the sun. Beautiful, radiant, life-giving amazing, gives you a, a proper picture of who, he, who God is. And, and yet, if you were to come too close to the sun, great damage would be done to you. In fact, I think it would probably be better said, it's not just us coming too close to the sun. It would be like an ice cube trying to come too close to the sun. It's gone. It no longer exists. And if we're to approach God, we're in trouble. Woe is me. For God's holiness is so pure and righteous that I have no ability to come into his presence. For to come into his presence would be just like an ice cube drawing near the sun. It'd be nothing but an evaporated puddle. As Mary reflects on who God is and how awesome he is, 
says he is, he is holy. And friends, if we were to stop right there, we are in trouble. The holiness of God should bring a healthy terror with it. Because if we were to stop there, God, who in, no, in him there is no modicum, no, no slight, no imperfection, no, no piece of unholiness and unworthiness, but in us, that is all we are. If that remains, then our sin is going to cause us to be judged on the spot, and we are miserable. He's holy. But she doesn't stop there. She says he's also merciful. His mercies from generation to generation on those who fear him, verse 50 says. Verse 54, it says, God has remembered his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever. Mercy is part of the character and nature and personality of who God is. Mercy, at its most basic level, is when God looks at us and feels compassion for us. He doesn't just look at you and watch as everything goes down the drain. He's, he's moved on our behalf. It, Isaiah chapter 49 talks about uh, the, the people are saying, well, I, I, you know, did, did God forget us? I think God might have forgotten us. And Isaiah says, wait, wait, no. C- can a woman forget her nursing child? Can a woman lack compassion for the child who came from her womb? I mean, those are, those are questions that you ask and you just kind of leave out there because I think what God is saying is, of course not. A woman will never forget her nursing child. A, a woman would never forget her child, no matter how old that child grows. That, that mother always has that compassion for her child. But even, even God um, anticipates the argument, oh, there may be some women who may forget their children. And so he says, even if those women forget, even if those mothers forget their children, I will not forget you. There is no analogy, there is no illustration, there is no picture that God can paint that paints a worthy picture of his compassion for us. No matter how much a mother loves her child, there, that, that, doesn't, that pales in comparison to how God feels about you in compassion. See, we're standing in line for God's wrath, and we're fully deserving of it. But as first Peter tells us, as God looks at us with compassion, as God looks at us with mercy, his desire isn't that we should be um, judged. His desire is that all men would come to repentance. That's, that's God's desire to do something about our sin. That's mercy. Mercy isn't that God has to do something about our sin. Mercy is that God wants to do something about our sin. But if it stopped there, just about his desire... That means very little, doesn't it? I mean, so, we're, we're in Christmas diet season, which those of you that don't know, that's the anti-diet. Okay? I would love to drop a few pounds before the Christmas diet kicks in so we can all break even come January, okay? But just because I want it to happen doesn't make it happen. I have to be able to curb my enthusiastic eating I need to be able to engage in particular level of exercise. But I, I don't, just because I want to lose weight doesn't make the weight fall off. I mean, if it did, that'd be awesome. But the reality is that's not all of it. I mean, a desire doesn't make it happen. So God's holy, which should terrify us. But he's merciful. That should bring us hope. 
But you want to know where real joy comes in? Real joy comes when we understand that he's mighty. The mighty one. It refers to God as the mighty one. That means literally the one who is able and capable of doing anything. Verse 51, he's done a mighty deed with his arm. You know, God's in the habit of doing that, right? God's in the habit of doing mighty deeds with his arm. We, we think about um, uh, the Israelites coming out of Egypt. We, we, we think about how God led them away from Egypt, and, and the picture is given to us. One of my favorite uh, psalms is Psalm 136. It's actually a beautiful song that has a chorus after every line. His faithful love endures forever. His faithful love endures forever. His faithful love endures forever. It goes over and over again. But if you were to read the first line of every verse, it gives you a beautiful history of God's actions for his people. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. He alone does great wonders. He made the heavens skillfully. He spread the land on the waters. He made the great lights, the sun to rule the day, the moon and stars to rule by night. And this is where it gets into that mighty arm. He struck the firstborn of the Egyptians. He brought Israel out from among them with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. Why does it say that God led his people out of Egypt with a strong hand and an outstretched arm? Picture dad dragging his child out of a dangerous situation. There's a few ways he could do that. Throw them over the shoulder, carry them, drag them by an ankle. But in this picture, what he's doing, he's got a strong hand and an outstretched arm. Here's the picture of God leading his people from Egypt. He's got him by the hand, and he's running through the wilderness, and nothing's going to stop him. So he's got a mighty, mighty hand, and he flexes it every once in a while for his people. Dads, you ever uh, arm wrestle your kids when they were little? Uh, Now it's a complete waste in my house. I think they could all beat me now. But when they were little, it used to be, okay, let's get going, we get ready, and it's like, I could take two of them at once, maybe? And be like, all right, so one hand, on hand, it's like, all right, here you go. And, and the way you arm wrestle your child is, is you do it in, in a kind, loving way, right? So it's, you just sit there and you wait, and it's like, oh, okay, let's go, oh, I'm trying so hard, and they get two hands on there, and then they're, they're sitting on your arm trying to get it down, and you're like, okay, you yield just a little, and then you flex, bam! I will show my power. I will create awe in these young people. (laughs) And every once in a while, God flexes. And he reveals his power. And he creates awe in the hearts of those before him. So it says he, he did a great deed with his arm. It says he scattered the proud. It says he toppled the mighty. See, that's how mighty God is. It doesn't matter who's set up where in what position. It doesn't matter who put them in that position. It doesn't matter how long they've been in that position. It doesn't matter the successes or the failures that they've had leading up to that position. God is over them. Think about Pharaoh. In an instant, Pharaoh was gone. My, my favorite picture of, of God uh, um, scattering the proud and toppling the mighty is found in Daniel chapter 4. In Daniel chapter 4, King Nebuchadnezzar, it's, it's awesome, King Nebuchadnezzar, he gets up on top of his roof and he's looking out over mighty Babylon that he has ruled over and built. And imagine that as being a king like this. Like, okay, look, look upon the place that I have built. 
Look, look what my wisdom has put together. Look what my strength has done. Look at all these wonderful things. Moo. <laughs> Moo. To those of you not familiar with the story, God said to Nebuchadnezzar, you didn't do any of this. And to show you, you're going to graze like a cow for seven periods of time until your heart repents and you understand that it's God that did all this. You think that's a flexing move by God? He toppled the mighty, scattered the proud. He's able to lift the lowly ones, to, to feed the hungry ones. He's able to do the unthinkable and to level the playing field for all people from, from all extremes in life. So think about the mighty nature of God and what he's able to do. Psalm 8, that's a favorite psalm here. We've talked about it a number of times. It says, man, I consider the work of your fingers, the sun and the moon. Now, did you catch that? That's not even his mighty arm. God's pinky created that. And David, understanding who he is in relationship to who God is, responds appropriately. What are we that you would even think about us? Because God is holy, he had to do something about our sin. Because God is merciful, he wanted to do something about our sin. And because he is mighty, he's able to do something about our sin. And he has done great things for us. He has done remarkable things that even Mary wasn't aware was going to happen she continued to ponder all these things in her heart. She continued to listen as the angels spoke to her, as the wise, as the shepherds spoke to her. She, she continued to gather all of this information and watch, and, and she was present in those moments. But even she didn't fully comprehend and understand that while we were sinners, God was mighty enough to do the impossible and hover over a virgin girl of the age 13, 14 years old and she would bring into this world his son. While we were sinners, he came into the world and he lived the perfect life that none of us can possibly live because we are sinners. It's in our nature. So Jesus came and lived the perfect life so he forever satisfied the law's demands. And then he laid down his life on the cross where you should have died, where I should have died. He was buried. He rose again three days later, proving that what he had done was enough. We were walking in darkness, cursing God, rebelling against God, but God, who is rich in mercy and because of the great love that he loved us with, made us alive with Christ. God didn't give us what we deserve. Instead, he showed mercy just as he does for anybody who fears him. 
And he showed that mercy and his might by sending Jesus into the world to save sinners. Consider this. So to the thief who was dying next to him on the cross, Jesus showed that there is no sinner who is beyond the reach of his mercy. That includes you. To, to the woman who had the issue of blood, and if you remember that story, he's being, Jesus is being pressed in by the crowds of people as he's trying to make his way through the streets and, 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 and there's places to go and people to meet and, 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 and important people to talk to and all these things to do and the disciples are trying to rush him along and as he passes by this woman who has gone to doctors and professionals and, and seen anybody and everybody who could possibly help her with a problem and yet has never been able to do anything. In that moment as Jesus passes by, she reaches out in the hopes of just touching the hem of his garment. And in the chaos and the confusion and the busyness of that moment, Jesus showed us that there is no problem that is too small and there is no person too marginal for him to care for them. You go to the tomb of one of Jesus' good friends, Lazarus. There's a lot there when you see him interact with Mary and Martha, what you realize is that he's willing to weep with us in our pain. The holy, merciful, mighty Savior. On the cross, he showed us how far he was willing to go to rescue us, to satisfy God's wrath for me. In the resurrection, he demonstrates the depth of his might. As we look forward to the return of Jesus, we can be filled with joy knowing that one day our faith will be sight and we'll spend all of eternity looking into the eyes of the one who loved me, called me, and somehow (laughs) I'll be able to give him a sliver of the worship he's deserving of. In the manger, we see God's holiness And mercy collide to bring us a mighty rescue from sin. Christmas doesn't mark a day or a season where we're supposed to be merry and bright because all the songs tell us we're supposed to be. It marks the day when that prince showed up on our doorstep and took that glass slipper even though I was dressed in my rags and my knuckles were bloody. And he said, you, you, I don't care what you look like. I don't care where you've been. I I, I don't care of all the excuses that could possibly come. I don't care about the calluses. You are mine. How blessed we are. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the goodness of Jesus Christ. I thank you that while we were so very far from you, you pursued us. I thank you that there are people sitting in this room, even right now, who you are pursuing. God, help them to yield. 
We're told you didn't come to the world to condemn the world. You came so that we'd be saved. But God, break down the barriers. Remove all the obstacles and the excuses. And cause the one sitting here who needs to yield to you to do just that. We thank you for your might, the way you demonstrated it. The way you demonstrated it in the virgin birth, the way you demonstrated it in sending your son, Jesus Christ, for us. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your holiness. Father, I ask that as we reflect on who you are this morning, that we would give you the worship and the adoration that you and you alone deserve. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.